0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website. Very, very inspiring and nourishing CGI A man went shopping with his wife. They were going through the mall. And as they were going through the mall, they met up with a man that the wife used to date in high school. And they interacted, and as they were interacting, the husband looked at this man, and he did not look like he was doing well. In fact, it looked like he was doing poorly. His clothes were a bit disheveled and torn, and when they left the mall and he went to his car, he was driving an old banger. And so when they got in their car and they drove away, the husband turned to the wife and said, boy... Aren't you lucky you married me instead of that guy? And she quickly came back and said, Aren't you lucky I married you? Because if I had married him, he'd be where you are today. (laughs) I think sometimes we can underestimate the role and the impact of a wife. And I want to talk today about marriage. Let's begin in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, and in verse 18, this is really how the Bible opens. It opens with this statement that the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So God having created everything on earth and then created Adam, his observation was that it wasn't good that Adam should be alone. And out of compassion, out of love for the man, He said this, I will make him a helper comparable to him. So he's created all the animals, and now he's created this human being. And he's saying it's not good that the human being is alone. I am going to make him a helper that's at the same level as him. And right here, we have the first glimpse into the meaning of marriage and how profound it is. And I would say right here, this this symbology, we see the plan of God. That the man, Adam, and his wife, are a symbol of what God is doing. That the man, Adam, represents his son. Adam is the son of God, but he symbolizes the son of God, Jesus Christ. And God says, out of love for his son, I'm going to make a helper comparable to him. There's the plan of God, that God looks at his son and says, you know what? It's not good for him to be alone. I'm going to make a helper for him, comparable to him, on the same level as him, and I'm going to marry that that woman to my son. The Bible begins with this statement, this plan, and it ends with it, that the whole Bible is a book about marriage. And it concludes with God doing this very thing. Taking the, So when Adam and Eve come together and have their family and really learn how to be married together, how one human being joins with another and then has a family, and, and those children grow up in the security of that bond, that that whole process makes the collective human being comparable to Christ. This is the plan of God. I would say this that marriage is the highest concept in the Bible. There is no higher concept. In fact, and I really appreciate the exhortation, Murray said that the Sabbath, the Sabbath days, are holy rehearsals. It just fits perfectly with what I want to speak about today. That we are preparing to marry Christ. And these Sabbath occasions are dress rehearsals. Learning how to be holy so that we can marry one who is holy. Learning how to come into his presence. In Proverbs eighteen twenty-two, Solomon says that whoever finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor of the Lord. And so Jesus Christ is receiving the favor of God. And when we as humans find a spouse, this is the blessing of God. And so certainly when our young people enter into this covenant, we must celebrate and support them. Because it's a wonderful blessing from God. And those of us who are in marriages, our marriages should reflect this blessing. People who are unmarried should look at our marriages and say, I want that. You know, as a young man, I wanted to be married, not because I saw a good example, but because I saw a horrible example. And I said, there must be a better way. And so I yearned to find a wife, to find the right woman. But it should be that when we look around us, the examples our young people see inspire them to say, you know what? I'm going to wait. I want to find the right person because I want the blessing of the Christian marriage that I see my parents, and my brethren enjoy. The problem, brethren, is that we have this paradox where at once, marriage is the highest possible concept in the Bible. There is no higher concept. And we live in a society that disparages marriage. There is nothing more despicable in our society's collective mindset than the Christian union. And it's designed to do everything to destroy the value of this union. And that, because we live in this, we swim in this every day, it affects us. Look at what we watch. Look, listen to the music, the books, the mag- even if you don't read the magazines, whatever is on the cover. The headlines, it's all just chipping away at this profound value of marriage. And so we in this society, I don't think, and and I'm not speaking absolutely, but I don't think on the whole we're on God's level of the value of marriage. I think we're more on the human level of, you know, marriage, yeah. I want us, brethren, to spend some time today thinking about marriage and sexuality. And the Bible is a highly sexual book. Let's just put that out there. It begins talking about sex. It ends talking about sex. And throughout the Bible is sex. And I remember when I came to this idea that, you know what, I could debate these Muslims is when I was watching one of their renowned debaters. His name is uh, uh, Didat. A Muslim became uh, Didat. And he was from South Africa. He's dead now. But he was just destroying Christian ministers, left, right, and center in these debates. And one of the things that he said was how nasty the Bible is. All of the sexuality that's in it. That it's X-rated. And that how could that be the word of God? And the Christian minister had no, no comeback well, yeah, the Bible has a lot to say about sex because of the symbology of marriage. And we can't shy away from it. And our young people, you're being bombarded with it. But we have to have the biblical view. So let's explore this together. Let's see how the Bible, our understanding of the Bible, can raise our view of marriage. Those of us who are married, let it motivate us to have the best marriages possible. Those of us who are looking forward to marriage, let it motivate us to marry the right person. And those of us who are beyond marriage, maybe we're divorced, we're widowed, no exception. We must still have this high view of marriage. Our whole life must be governed by our concept of marriage. Marriage is the thing. Marriage is the core concept of our walk in this life. Whether we're single, married, young, old, male, female, it's all about marriage. In his bulletin this week, Pastor Murray said, While Passover seems like a long ways off, we know how fast time passes. Let's make this year a year of growth. Preparing the Holy Bride of Christ for his return. I'm just going to read that again because it's it's the sort of thing that you just read over. But it is so profound. Let's make this a year of growth. Preparing the Holy Bride of Christ for his return. That's what this message today is about. How we can have a view and a motivation that's all about Preparing the holy bride of Christ for his return. Where can we go to get this view of marital love, to get the biblical view of marital love? We're surrounded by terrible examples. (laughs) We could walk out here and within five minutes be bombarded with horrible examples. It's everywhere. So, where's the good example? What's the standard? that we should be motivated by. Well, the Bible gives us that standard. Let's turn to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, where we're going to get some insight into the joy of marital love. And I was just reading something the other day that says a lot of marriages are being destroyed by smartphones. That husbands, wives are taking their smartphones to bed, and rather than having intimacy with each other, they're preoccupied with the phone. In one case I was reading, the, the wife was asking the husband about going out and, and he was just so into his phone and answering email, he didn't even, she got so frustrated that the smartphones are destroying marriages. People are distracted. They're not focused on each other. But look at the focus here in Song of Solomon, where we get an idea of what, of what love looks like. So here we have a king and his bride. And from here we get, to, there's two, two um, insights that we can gather from this. One is we can get an idea of the intimacy that existed between Adam and Eve. Adam was a king. Eve was his bride. And there was intense intimacy between them before it was destroyed. And that was symbolic of what God is doing for Christ. So we can also see the intimacy that Christ has for his church and what we are being pulled into and a part of. Let's begin in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 1, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. So her love stands out. So her love stands out. In Sol- Song of Solomon 2, chapter verse 2, that her love concert, compared to the other daughters, their love is like thorns, and hers is like a lily among those thorns. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods so is my beloved among the sons so her love stands out and he stands out so you look at all these trees but then there's this apple tree that's just flourishing and that's what her beloved is like i sat down in his shade with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste it's just, just so much enjoying his presence he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples. Why? Because I'm lovesick. This passion, this intimacy that she had with the king, when he was separated from her, she was sick with love and needed to be sustained. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me, this lovely intimacy. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, By the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. This this intimacy is so powerful. This force is so intense that you better not get involved in this prematurely. That wait until the time is right because the absence is so painful that she just needs to be with her lover. The voice of my beloved, she hears him. He's coming. Behold, he comes. Again, we're thinking spiritually here as well. So by this, by this wonderful example, we understand what God is doing when he says, I'm preparing a help appropriate for my son. So when we hear his voice, we know he's coming. We love his appearing. There's an excitement that we have that our king is coming. Behold, he comes. Leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. So you get the idea of Solomon galloping toward her here. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. So now he's arrived there. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, rise up, my love, my fair fair one, and come away. Uh, And you just get the sense of how deep the love is. That she has for her king. Let's go to chapter 4. And it's worth just sitting down and reading all of this. To get this full insight. But here in chapter 4. Let's see now the king's love. For the bride. We, we have that sense of the bride's love for the king. Chapter 4. Behold. Verse 1. You are fair my love. Behold. You are beautiful. You have doves' eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. I mean, today we wouldn't say this. We'd say, you know, your hair is like an iPhone X. <laughs> yeah, but we would seem silly today with our uh, analogies. But certainly in this agri- ag- agrarian society, this would be a compliment. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. And you can imagine these goats just coming down the mountain and then just the formation and how beautiful they would have looked. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, okay, <laughs> which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a... Do you get the sense that he looked at her? That he really took her in? That he wasn't distracted? Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, And your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory. I wouldn't say this today, (laughs) but certainly you get the sense of how, how appreciative he is of her. On which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all beautiful, my love, and there is no spot in you. Again, we're thinking spiritually. This is what Christ is saying when he looks at the church that's without spot or wrinkle. And as much as we desire his return, he desires to be with us. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. And then he goes on here to talk about uh, where he wants to take her. But verse 9, you have ravished my heart. So you see that her heart was ravished. She's like, don't stir up love prematurely. It's, I'm lovesick. But he also is lovesick. You've ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart. With one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace, how fair is your love, my sister. My spouse, how much better than wine is your love? And of course, he's talking about really expensive wine here. This is Solomon. But you really get the sense here of his love for her, the scent of your perfumes and all spices. Your lips, oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden enclosed, there's so much uh, beauty inside is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. And this kind of passion is something that women, the the wife can create in her husband. This is the the, the way the wife is tender and attentive to the husband. It inspires these feelings of intense love for her. Let's go to chapter 6, just again to underline. So we saw the intense love of the wife, her husband, the king, the intense love of the king for his spouse, and now we just want to see the, the power of this marital love. Chapter 6, verse 4, oh my love, you are as beautiful as Terzah, so this is a beautiful city, lovely as Jerusalem, another beautiful, splendid city. This is how beautiful she is, awesome as an army with banners. Verse 5, turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. This is marital love. This is what uh, nobody in this society wants to promote. Any TV show, any movie, any book, it promotes adulterous love. It's always you know, somebody's married, they're unhappily married, and then the true love comes along. So it, it authorizes or validates adultery. And let's celebrate adultery, let's celebrate fornication. The Bible celebrates marriage. Your eyes have overcome look your eyes have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. And he goes on again to talk about her beauty. And then here, at verse 9, My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother. The favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines, they praised her. Chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck like an ivory tower. The eyes of the pools. Your eyes are like the pools in Heshbon. goes on again, just overtaken with her beauty. Verse 6. How fair, how beautiful, how pleasant you are. O oh, love with your delights. There's delight in marriage. How beautiful you are with your delights. This stature of yours is like a palm tree and your breasts like its clusters. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. She, just, she celebrates this intimacy and she loves the fact that he desires her so much. Come, my beloved. She desires intimacy with him. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. Chapter 8. Oh, that you were, verse 1, oh, that you were like my brother who nursed at my mother's breast. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to instruct me. I would cause you to drink of spiced wine, of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. There is this depth of desire that she has for her husband. This marital love is so joyful, it's so full of delight, they can't wait to come together. And it is symbolic of what God is doing spiritually. So we have to ask, like, what happened? If marital love is so beautiful, why do we live in a society, in a world, that hates it, that doesn't celebrate it, that we never hear of this type of love in marriage? I I challenge you to find me a movie, I would love to watch it, where marital love is celebrated. And you leave that movie thinking, I can't wait to get married. Or I've I've got to reinforce my marriage. I've got to repair my marriage because I'm so inspired by the marital love I see on screen. I've never seen such a thing. What goes wrong? Let's go to Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30. Wonder, like, what has, why is marriage broken? People still marry, but then they divorce, and it's just, there's a lot of unfaithfulness. Proverbs 30 and verse 18. There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four, which I don't understand. What are these things? The way of an eagle in the air. So you look at an eagle flying through the air, and Solomon's like, I don't understand this. The way of a serpent on a rock. You just see the serpent, like, how does, how does God do this? The way of a ship in the middle of the sea. And the way of a man with a virgin. So the same way that mystery of the king with the the maiden. And the, the depth of love, the intensity. And when a man is courting a woman that he loves, and how it brings out the best in him, and how inspired he is to want to give her his best. Solomon's saying, this is a mystery to me, how that happens. But he goes on. Verse 20. This is the way of an adulterous woman. So, so the way of a man with a virgin is a wonderful thing. But then there's something else that contradicts it. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wickedness. This is the society we live in today. They celebrate this. And they've done no wickedness. And yet, they're the most morally outraged They position themselves as these moral judges and will condemn anybody for the slightest infraction. And yet they're full of wickedness. And they do all kinds of adultery. And they say they've done no wickedness. For three things the earth is perturbed. Yes, for four it cannot bear up. For a servant when he reigns, a fool when he is filled with food, a hateful woman when she is married. And a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. It's a terrible thing when a hateful woman is married. That's why we've got to make sure we choose wisely. We've got to develop our daughters to be beautiful women. Develop our sons to be beautiful men. And beautiful men and women come together. And let the hateful do what they do. But Solomon says this is a terrible thing. When a, a hateful woman, when she is married. And we see then that the Bible is all about marriage. And it concludes with two women. It concludes with the beautiful woman, the bride of Christ. And it concludes with the whore, the hateful woman. The woman who eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. I've done no wickedness. And all of life is about which path do we travel? Are we going to, as Murray said, embrace holiness so that we can be the woman prepared to be a help to Christ? Or do we embrace wickedness? And be a part of the prostitution system of the beast. Let's go to Exodus 32. Because it's not just about what we do. Which path do we take? We are called into the role of priests. We are here to guide the rest of humanity to make the choice. Which way will they go? And you can see this very clearly in Exodus 32. And I'm going to begin in verse 21. I'm going to read from the New King James. I think it's a better translation than the the King James. Exodus 32, verse 21. Uh, Moses comes down from the mountain. The people of Israel have corrupted themselves. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Moses is shocked. Something There was a state of affairs before he went up to the mountain. And when he came down from the mountain, the state of affairs had completely changed. And Moses wants to know, what did the people do to you, Aaron? What happened here? So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. So Aaron is saying, it's not my fault. You know what the people are like. It was just, it was inevitable. But that wasn't Moses' conception. Moses had an expectation of Aaron, that Aaron failed. And we see this expectation as we read on. So Aaron is explaining that people are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. But verse 25, now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, in other words, they were naked and they were involved in debauchery. And Moses is seeing this. When Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, and then Moses adds this, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. So Moses had an expectation of Aaron. So Aaron's saying, you know what the people are like. But Moses is saying, Aaron, you should have restrained the people. And we see that in Malachi. Again, when Israel is corrupting themselves, Malachi says, the priest's lips should instruct the people in the law. The people should in- should receive the law from the priest. And so we have to get this right. Because God wants the people to come to us to understand how to conduct themselves. We can't just say, oh, You know what the people are like, and then we go along with them. We have to be the opposite and be able to lead the people to God. And it really is an understanding that we have that idolatry, this is the biggest sin, to have a God before God. But our understanding has to be deeper, that idolatry and adultery are two sides of the same coin. That adultery is idolatry. And idolatry is adultery. And that's what we see here with with the children of Israel. That in participating in debauchery, they were putting another god before God. And this takes us right back to the Garden of Eden. That when God created Eve, or Isha, and gave her to the man, that that union, the beauty of that union reflected what God is doing. That Christ and the bride will be married. And that's the union that God is building. Satan inserted himself in that union. Satan made the Trinity. So instead of a man and his wife, it was a man, his wife, and Satan involved in sexuality. And this is why all adultery is idolatry. Because Satan wants to be worshipped. When a man and a woman come together in holy matrimony, that worships God. Any deviation from that is acknowledgement of Satan's participation in that union. And it worships the devil. Look at this now in Hosea. Hosea 1. Hosea 1, in verse 1, we saw in Proverbs that Solomon said one of the most disturbing things is a hateful woman when she's married, and we're going to see that here. Hosea 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, so you can see here that um, if you're following us with Isaiah, Hosea and Isaiah were contemporaries. Hosea was uh, to Israel, Isaiah was to Judah. They both prophesied in the days of Uzziah the king. And they both have the same name. Hosea means God saves, and Isaiah means God saves, and Joshua means God saves, and Jesus means God saves. So it's all the same name. So he was prophesying the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he's a contemporary to Isaiah and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto you a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. Porneia and idolatry idolatry are the same thing. And God is really reinforcing this to his people by saying to his prophet, go and marry a prostitute. Marry someone that all the men have had and build a family with her. So that the people can understand what idolatry is and what they're doing, departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer. So if we were alive in the time, it would be, you know, he went and took Rihanna or one of these people, very popular. And we just know that they're immoral. And everybody's had them. And the husband now is walking around town with a woman that has no honor. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, call his name Jezreel, meaning to scatter. So the children of Israel are going to be scattered. And he's prophesying at the same time as Isaiah. And Isaiah is saying, Assyria is coming. And the foreign policy of Assyria was to scatter and to destroy this people. So his name is to be called Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel. And it's funny, uh, Yezreel and Israel, very close. Israel means prevailed with God. Jezreel means scattered by God. So this is the Hebrew, the poetry of it. For yet a little while. So they go from Israel to Yezreel. For yet a little while and I will avenge the blood of Israel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. He's prophesying this when Israel is prosperous. Israel is doing very well. They look like this is a kingdom that's going to last forever. And yet the child is to be called Jezreel because this kingdom's coming down. And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, Call her name Lo-ru-hama, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. So they're to be scattered, and God will have no mercy. But, here in verse 7, I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. So, again, Isaiah is prophesying in the south. And he tells them, don't align yourself with Assyria. Um, when Assyria destroys Israel, then they move south to destroy Judah. And God sends an angel and destroys the Assyrian army. So God protects Judah. Now when she had weaned, Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, call his name lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. This, this should help us understand. The gravity of depravity. That they're to be scattered. There will be no mercy. And they will no longer be his people. Because of their immorality. In chapter 4. He just talks about the, the immorality of the people. But in verse 6. In the context of their immorality, he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So knowledge is what enables people not to be destroyed. And what we're doing, these rehearsals that we're going through every Sabbath, we are receiving knowledge. Because we are receiving salvific knowledge. The knowledge that we are receiving, we must use to save mankind from this destruction. This is a pattern that God lays down. If you're loyal to me, I'll be loyal to you. But if you pervert yourself, if you engage in debauchery, if you engage in porneia, I will destroy you. And so we have to bring this knowledge. The priest's lips should speak knowledge. We have to bring this knowledge to the people so that they are not destroyed. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will also reject you. That you shall be no priest to me. So our desire is to be a priest to God. That's what he wants. But we cannot do it without knowledge. If we reject knowledge, then we cannot be a priest to him because we have to teach this knowledge. Seeing that you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. And verse 9, and there shall be like people, like priests. So the priest sets the tone. And if the priest is corrupt and the priest doesn't care and the priest compromises, the people will be the same. And I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their doings. For they shall eat and not have enough. You see, speaking to this prosperous nation, there's going to come a time they're going to eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase because they have left off to take heed to the Lord. So we have to see very, very clearly, brethren, whoredom is idolatry. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away their heart. We're surrounded in a, we live in a society that's all about whoredom and wine. Marijuana is now being legalized. Uh, Prostitution is legalized. It's all about whoredom and wine. We cannot be swept up in this. We have to guard what comes into our, our hearts. Verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery. For, them, for themselves are so, separated with whores, and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore, the people that does not understand shall fall. And then we know the rest of the story. Assyria comes in, completely destroys this nation to the point where they're lost now. We don't know where they are. But we, have, we have a sense, but we don't, people cannot say clearly that these are the people of God. I was reading a, an article um, on divorce in Canada. They've stopped taking stats since 2008, but it is skyrocketing. And it's interesting that these articles are promoting divorce, H- how to get divorced. And, you know, you're going to go through a bit of um, trauma. It's going to be stressful. But here's, you know, here's what to do. And make sure you talk to a friend and, and never trying to, like, what can you do to save your marriage? Just go ahead. But here's what to look out for. And so Canada is... Um, significant divorce rate. Let's go to Ephesians. I want to just wrap up here where um, Landon read earlier because it is a great mystery and I just wanted to give that contrast between the marital love in the Song of Solomon and the unfaithfulness of Gomer to Hosea in Hosea. That we have that contrast of what God wants us to have in our marriages compared to what surrounds us today in our society. I want to read Ephesians 5, but the thing about Paul is you can't cut into the middle of Paul. When he writes, you have to stay with his train of thought. So if you just sort of jump in the middle of a text, you're missing what he's actually saying. So Ephesians 5, to understand what he's saying in Ephesians 5, I need to pick it up from Ephesians 4. So let's just go to 4 before we go to 5 to see what is, what is the point that he's making. He says in verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I'm begging you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. This is the point. That we have a vocation. We have a calling. And we have to live at that standard. We have to walk worthy. That if somebody says, you know, this is the call of God, people could say, yeah, I could see that. They, they, I could see where they are living at that standard. So we, the, the, he's begging us that we walk at this standard. With all lowliness and meekness, Christ says to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And again, Pastor Murray said that these holy days are rehearsals. So there's a rehearsal that we do every year to be on guard against leaven. And Christ himself said, beware that this leaven is dangerous. It's going to destroy the church. You be careful. And so he's begging us here that we walk with lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. This is the point. Let's walk worthy of this vocation, but let's do it with humility, with a lot of patience, and with deep love for one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, In the bond of peace. And then he goes on to explain to us. There's one body. One spirit. Even as we are called. In one hope of our calling. So walk worthy of this calling. And there's one hope for the calling. And we know from Genesis 2. That the plan of God. Is to make a wife. That's appropriate. That's comparable. To the son. That's at the same level as the son. Because it's not good for the son to be alone. So this is the hope of the calling. So we have to have this view that, wait a minute, we're all in this together. Collectively, we are being fashioned into the spouse of Christ. So let us not be high-minded. Let us not be uh, hateful. Let us not be dismissive of one another. Instead, we need to really endeavor through the Holy Spirit to have this unity. Because there's one body. We we are all together the bride of Christ. There's one hope for our calling. And there's one Lord that we're going to marry. And then there's one God who said it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a wife appropriate for him. But then in verse 7, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So we all have different gifts. And our sister Anna, just recently baptized, God is going to gift her. So that she can contribute to this process and we can contribute to her process. And we're all in this together. And then he gives apostles and ministers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints. Verse, verse 12. Because he said, I'm going to make a help meet for him. So then he gives these gifts. Some are pastors. Some are teachers. For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ because when the man and the wife come together, it's to work. So the wife is going to be an appropriate helper to the man in his work. So the gifts now are given so that the woman can be edified and prepared till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. And really what we could see there is unto the bride unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ because he said, she's going to be appropriate. I'm going to make a help appropriate for the man. So we have to come to the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we're on the same level. So we're not going to be tossed to and fro with false doctrine. Now, with that in mind, verse 17, This I say therefore, and I'm testifying in the Lord, That from now on, don't walk like other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. If you really get this, if we really understand what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation and the, the hope of our calling, then stop walking the way these Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They are full of leaven and they're inappropriate for God. In order for us to be appropriate for God, we have to get rid of the leaven and then we have to mature to the full stature of Christ, so we cannot participate in what these Gentiles participate in. Having the understanding darkened, it's just, they're, they're, they, they can't understand, it's, un, it's darkened. Being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, they, and they don't call it ignorance, they think they're very smart, but God looks at them and says they have no idea what he's doing because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling, have given themselves over to lasciviousness. This is what Satan does from the very beginning. Eve gave herself over to lasciviousness. This is what this is Satan's technique from the very beginning to the point where God had to come in and say, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman. Because whatever was happening there, it's not going to happen anymore. She gave herself over to his seduction. Who... Being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness. And this is what the Bible is all about. That lasciviousness is idolatry. And this is the devil's technique. To seduce people into lasciviousness. To work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard of him. And have been taught by him. As the truth is in Jesus. That you put off concerning the former conduct the old man. So all of us have The former conduct. All of us have the old man. Let's put it off. Let's not live that way anymore. Let's repent, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. It's it's always this lust thing. It's always the satisfaction of self, the aggrandizement of self, the priority of self. This is the devil's technique. The devil conquers, the devil wins when we are self-absorbed. And self-oriented. He has no power when we are Christ-like and focused on the other. So let's put off this old conduct, which is easily seduced because of self-interest. We become puppets of the devil when we prioritize ourselves. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man. Which, after God, is created in righteousness and true holiness, what Murray's going to be focusing on. Because this is what he says, I'm going to make a help appropriate and comparable to my son. So, therefore, we have to put on this new man, which God is fashioning in righteousness and true holiness to be appropriate for his son. Therefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. All he's saying here is, don't be arrogant. Because that's how this, the devil works. That's how he seduces us. So just be other-oriented. Don't give, He actually says it here, verse 27. Don't give place to the devil. We know his techniques. He's, he's not creative. He's effective. There's a difference. Effective and creative are not the same thing. So he doesn't have lots and lots of techniques. But the techniques that he has work. So don't give place to the devil. So again, let him that steals, steal no more. So don't think of yourself, think of others. Rather, let him labor. So that you can give to him that needs. Let no corrupt communication come out of our mouths, but that which edifies. So it's always about this, get the focus off yourself and onto the bride. And how you can edify the bride and give grace to the hearers. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. So he goes on to tell us to be kind to one another. Again, it's always shifting from this focus on self to understanding what God is doing and having the honor of participating in what God is doing. With that now as context, let's come to chapter 5. So we understand now that he's begging us to walk worthy of this vocation. And he's begging us to do it with humility. And he's cautioning us not to be seduced by the devil who works through the old man, which is corrupt through lust. We want what we want. We want for ourselves. Don't do that. Want for the bride. Want edification of others. Be you, therefore, followers of God as dear children and walk in love. Again, concern for the other. We're all about the other. The same way Christ loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So, we must walk worthy. So don't forget what he started with in verse 1 of chapter 4. Walk worthy of the vocation. The way to do that is to walk in love. What is love? It's the opposite of lust. So rather than wanting for self, we want for the other. What? How does this love work? Well, it's the same way that Christ loved us. How did he love us? He gave himself for us. So we are being called to give ourselves. This is what we're rehearsing, learning how to give ourselves so that God can use us to work with. So this is Christ's mind. He gives himself for others. And God says, you know what? I'm going to make a spouse for him that's comparable to him that works at the same level as him. So we have to learn how to give ourselves for others. So then when we're joining with Christ, we're on the same page. We're not with Christ in thinking of ourselves and being unfaithful to him. We're with him to give ourselves for others. But porneia, which is any sexuality outside of marriage, and all uncleanness, and, and we can be so easily seduced. And I, gotta, I do, I do want to just say this, because I've been to some different congregations. Thank you to all the women here for how you dress. You dress like Christian women. And that's not everywhere. Again, we're influenced by the society around us, and you have women will come to services and dressing very seductively, dressing as a sexy lady in services. This is, it's hard to comprehend that a woman coming into services would think it flattering to be sexy. That a man's eyes would drift to her body, which is pornea, which is sexual activity outside of marriage. And therefore, it's worship of the devil. So the woman is enabling the worship of Satan in the very congregation of God. Because all sexual activity outside of marriage is pornea. So fornication, pornea, and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. We are just so on the agenda of God to give ourselves for others that it would never be named among us that we're involved in the immorality. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient. Verse 5, because you know this, you know, the people of Israel rejected knowledge and they were destroyed. God rejected them because they rejected knowledge. But we have knowledge and we don't reject it. Because he says, "For this is the knowledge that you have, that no whoremonger, none, without exception, no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, Who is an idolater? So adultery and idolatry, same thing. Who is an idolater? Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God? It's impossible. So we know this. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Anybody who says the opposite, it's vain words. For because of these things, it's because of these things, comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. What does that mean? We are awash in Pornea. It's everywhere. And the apostle is saying, it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming upon the earth. Why? Because any sexual activity outside of marriage worships the devil. And God's intention is to make a wife fit for Christ. And that's what we're a part of. So don't let anybody fool you. And they'll try to fool you. They're going to present the harlot, and she's going to look beautiful. And you're going to think, oh, wow, I wish I could be with her. If we're twisted, which they do over and over to our children. The access to pornography that our children have today, it's to twist their mind and have them desire the harlot. And then we get deceived and think it's okay and we rationalize and the apostle is pleading to walk worthy of this vocation. It's such a high calling. There's a hope for it. And don't be deceived. It's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. Therefore, don't be partakers with them. Let's drop down now to verse 21. Here, that we must submit ourselves to one another again. This is all in the context of chapter 4, verse 1 of how we work, walk worthy, how we walk worthy of our calling, of our vocation. That we submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God, because He said, Walk with humility, walk with all lowliness and meekness. So, this is what we're, we're, we're learning. How do we become that bride of Christ? This is how. H- how do we become that woman who is comparable to Christ? This is how. Because this is what Christ is like. So as a congregation, we're rehearsing. Let's learn to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. Then he goes on to, ex- to give us some detail now. To say to the wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. So we get a glimpse of this, or we had a glimpse of this, by reading the Song of Solomon. That the woman wasn't like, oh yeah, the king is coming, oh well, I I better submit. She was like, the king is coming. I am lovesick. I can't wait till he appears. He's going to put his left hand behind my head, and his right arm is going to embrace me, And I just, I I can't wait. This is how the wife submits to her husband. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. So Eve failed. The second Adam has come along, and he is working to restore Eve so that that marriage can take place. He's the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, in the same way, it's not, oh, yeah, we have to obey Christ. Okay, what does he want this time? It's the king is coming. And what do we like? Let me search the scriptures because we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let me search the script. How can I be appropriate for him? And let me search the scriptures. I can't wait to get into the scriptures to see what, what should I do? What should I not do? The same way the church is like that. So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives, husbands. We saw the love that the king had for his wife. He just knew her in detail. Could tell you everything about her. Love your wives. The way Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. There it is again. You know, we we are schooled to believe or influenced to believe that sexuality is all about what you can get. In fact, I think they'll say that in the vernacular: "Are you are you getting enough?" It's about what you can get. The Bible's saying the opposite. Husbands, love your wife the way Christ loved the church, and gave Himself for it. We're just constantly thinking about the wife, and how do we sacrifice? What, What can we do more to bless her? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. This is the operation. Christ and the Father are working in us to present us to Christ. Not having spot or wrinkle. When the king in Song of Solomon looked at this beautiful woman, there was no spot or wrinkle. That's what he's doing. And we have to help each other get here. But we, we, we do this in our marriages first or any such thing. But that it should be holy. There's that word again. And without blemish. In this way, men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet, yet hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord the church for we are members of his body of his flesh and of his bones for this reason for this reason because we are members of his body because of what this this mission that he's on for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they two shall be one flesh There's a very high purpose. It's the highest concept in the Bible, the concept of marriage. And when we get it, we devote ourselves to it, whether we're married or not. Because it's it's the controlling concept of the Bible. It's the controlling concept of our walk in life. It's all about this, becoming one flesh with Christ. In fact, he says this here in verse 32. This is no small mystery. It's big. This is a great mystery, and I'll just let you know that I'm speaking about Christ in the church, but it's big. It's very hard to comprehend. It's a big, big mystery, Christ in the church. So our our marriages reflect this work that Christ is doing. So even though it's a big mystery and we can't fully grasp it, in terms of walking worthy of our vocation, nevertheless, let every one of you, every, no exception, every one of you in particular, so love his wife, even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. So as big a mystery as this is, if we can just get our marriages right, it's all going to work out. So let's just work hard to get this right. The past is the past. We have a bright future. And building that bright future has everything to do with how we treat each other. In marriage. And I want to conclude in 1 Corinthians 7. And again, I'm speaking to the married people here, but I'm speaking to all of us. Those of us who are married, we have this blessing, we have this wonderful joy, this delight in marriage. Those of us who are not married or not yet married, we also have this delight, not physically, not physically. The wrath of God comes down to this earth because of what people are doing outside of marriage. But this joy, this delight of marriage is for all of us because it helps us get our minds on God's plane, on God's level, to understand what it is he's doing. But here in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is wise for a man not to touch a woman. Like, If you understand the destruction, if you understand the wrath of God that's coming upon this earth, it's wise not to be involved in pornia. Nevertheless, to avoid pornia, because the wrath of God is coming down to this earth because of this, let every man have his own wife. And, and it's not that he has a negative view of marriage here. It's just the time they were in the time of intense persecution it's like it really didn't make sense to get married because you'd probably lose your spouse given the persecution but to avoid porneia it's better to get married and let every woman have her own husband now within the marital bond let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband so Paul is very very clear sexuality belongs in marriage. It is an act of giving. It's an act of proactive giving. It's it's something that each person in the marriage proactively and lovingly and frequently gives to the other. This is where sexuality belongs. We live in a society where it's everywhere else. Paul is saying it belongs here. In fact, the wife does not have power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise, this is 7 verse 4, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4. In the same way also, the husband doesn't have power over his own body, but the wife. This is a great mystery, but he's speaking concerning Christ in the church. And in our marriages, we are developing the mind of Christ. And so there should be this intense delight and pleasure and reciprocity in marriage, each looking after the other. There's no neglect. It's not that the wife is there and I'm on my smartphone and have no idea what she's doing. I don't even even remember what she looks like. But I can tell you what my phone looks like. This is not the marriage of Christ. This is not what he's looking for. When he evaluates us, we're going to get a failing grade. He's looking for people that understand this. That they're lovesick. And that's something that develops over time. With this type of intimacy, when you're separated, you're lovesick. Because the hormones, the, the, the way the mind works, you're just bound to each other. You're bound to each other. And that's what God is looking for. Don't, in fact, look, look at the language he uses. Don't be a partner of the devil. If we are not proactively looking after each other, we are partners of Satan. That's what he's saying. Don't defraud one another. How dare you? Defraud one another. Unless it be with consent for a time. That you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. That's different. So you agree together. Look, for the next little while I really have to focus. I want to fast a bit. Pray a bit. Is that okay? No, it doesn't work for me this week. Maybe, okay, I'll do it next week. That's the relationship. It's such a high priority. That to do anything less is to help out the devil, to destroy marriage. But if you do agree to this, just for a time, then come together again, that Satan tempts you not for your incontinency. Satan is not creative, he's effective. And sex is everywhere, except where it belongs, in the marriage. And so sex is not something that we take, it's something that we give. And what we're seeing here, we're going right back to Genesis 3, the Trinity. Instead of Adam and Eve, it's Adam, Eve, and Satan. And then they're ashamed. And here's the same thing with our wives and our husbands. It should be the husband and wife exclusively. But if we're we're neglecting, it opens the door. Husband's eyes start to wander. Wife's heart starts to wander. And the devil destroys our marriage. It's hard for me to grasp what God is saying with respect to marriage. It's harder to teach it. So I'm just hoping that through the Holy Spirit and experience, that we will all come to this full understanding of this gift of marital love. That those of us who are married, let's, we have first-hand experience It's an experiential journey that we're on. Let us wholeheartedly embrace it and celebrate the fact that we are bound to one another. Those of us who are not married, let's also celebrate this wonderful gift of marriage. Let's let's be students of marriage. We don't have to be married to be students of marriage. But the Bible is all about marriage. And God expects that we will be bound and determined by the concept of marriage, to be ready for his This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.